Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Sit back, kick up your feet, and enjoy today's show as we have a gem of an episode for all of you listeners as I am joined by five-time Grand Slam champion and 2016 Olympic silver medalist Rajiv Ram to talk about his ascent to the world number one doubles ranking in 2022. Of course, we also wanted to talk to Rajiv about his reaction being left off the U.S. Davis Cup roster. What did that mean to him, of course? Also had to explore what it's like to be playing this well into your late 30s. Had to talk about his time at the University of Illinois. He was a member of one of the greatest men's college tennis teams in history, the 03 Fighting Illini. We talk about all of that and so much more. Fantastic episode that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course. Shout out, as always, to our sponsors behind the scenes who allow us to have this sort of fun on the podcast. Podcast. If you want access to the best in artificial intelligence technology as it relates to the tennis world, go check out the Swing Vision app today. Use our promo code CRACK20 to let them know we sent you there. But with all that in mind, let's not beat around the bush. Let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with the one and only Rajiv Ram. Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code Crack 20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information, one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man with, simply put, too many accolades to list all at once, so we'll go with these. He's a five-time Grand Slam champion, 2016 Olympic silver medalist, and arguably one of the members of arguably, I should say, the best college tennis team of the 21st century. Welcome back onto our show, Rajiv Ram. Rajiv, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It's uh, great to be back on your show. 
No, it is a pleasure to have you back. And I'm going to nerd out here. We're just, you know, no chaser, straight shots. We'll get right into it. We are on the precipice of the 20-year anniversary of your Illinois team going undefeated, winning the 2003 National Championship. Let me ask you this. If I would have told you at that time that 20 years later, you would still be grinding out on the ATP Tour, what would 19-year-old Rajiv Ram have said? He would have said, you're crazy, there's no way, and I would have retired a long time before then. So, yeah, that's what I would have said. Yeah, you would have said, well, I've already won 17 Grand Slam titles, so I'll be retired by then. You know, everything will be in the book. But with that perspective in mind, again, more than probably 30 years now for you out on the court grinding away. And this is the season where you can finally say, you know what? I was ranked number one in the world at something. At one point, you were you know, number one this season, number one doubles player in the world. What does that mean to you after all you've been through throughout your career? Um, phew, tough to put into words, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I kind of knew, I guess, after we won the US Open that it was going to happen. It was just sort of a matter of math. And I I didn't, you know, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, since I know it was coming, it wasn't going to be such a shock or anything. And then, like, I woke up on that Monday and saw the number one by my name. And it was like, I, I still almost couldn't believe it, to be honest with you. It was like, you know, you, you when you start playing, it just seems so far away. It seems like the people that, you know, are at that spot have so many wins and so many points and so many titles. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, I'm struggling to win matches out here. And how would I ever get to that stage to even put myself in in contention? And then, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's still it's still as crazy to think about now, but, um, you know, pretty awesome and, and definitely a, a humbling, humbling feeling. Mm-hmm. I love that you reference it as well, it comes down to the math and you're doing the numbers <laughs> crunching there and you're like, I'm pretty sure we're going to get to that number one spot. Yeah. And again, for you, certainly well deserved. And, you know, looking what you were able to accomplish this season, obviously quarterfinals, French Open, semifinals, Wimbledon, then you win that title at the U.S. Open. Uh I know this is a strange question, uh, but mm-hmm. I'll ask it anyways. 38 years old now this past season. Were you playing the best tennis of your career in 2022? Or what clicked, in your opinion, to allow you to have the success that you did? Other than <laughs> well, riding I mean, Joe's think... shoulders, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Having a good partner. <laughs> like I always say, it's the key to doubles. But <laughs> I think, I mean, look, you know, I, 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 I'm a little bit different because I feel like I started my doubles career in 2017, you know, when I stopped playing singles. So I don't feel like I've been doing this particular discipline as far as my focus for that long you know i mean i think it's sort of the natural course i had a you know a couple of partnerships and then and then join up with joe and it was great in 2019 i honestly think we probably could have gotten there in 2020 i mean we'd won the australian open right before covid hit so i think we were um you know yeah on the brink of maybe having a great season that year obviously it, it was you know a lot of worse things to contend with than than us not doing that um, and then, you know, we, we were close again in 2021, we, we finally Aussie open and, um, you know, we sat meet at Wimbledon and, you know, we had a, and we won the U S open. We just kind of, we had a great year of just a couple of the guys had, had, you know, slightly better years than we did. Um, so I don't feel like this was like, you know, a crazy good year. It just sort of, I think it was, uh, you know, us showing that we are consistently at that level and, you know, it, it, it actually working out this year, but it wasn't like, you know, we didn't have good seasons, um, preceding. 
Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And uh, to your point, sometimes it really does just come down to the math. I am also curious for you this year. You know, again, you played 59 doubles matches here and, you know, that's without the singles workload. But I'm curious how you felt you managed your schedule throughout the course of the year, how different it is when you're just focusing on doubles tournaments, doubles events throughout the course of a season. Yeah, I think it's way different in, in two ways. One, in singles, I was never ranked anywhere near this high. So it was like, you know, you always had to sort of, you know, look for extra tournaments to play and hopefully play more matches and, you know, worry more about points. And, and so that's one thing. And obviously singles is more taxing than doubles. I don't think anyone's going to ever argue that. So I think those two things um, make it a lot easier to plan and trying to, you know, to kind of try to build in those rest periods. Like we had a good five weeks off after the U.S. Open to try and, you know, prepare and make a good run at the end of the season. Um you know, so we, 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 I think one of the things we do pretty well is we do a good job of building in those, those blocks where we rest up and we, we honestly don't come out amazing a lot of times the first week, but, you know, we have kind of trust in the fact that if we get enough matches and get enough court time that, you know, by the time a big tournament comes along, we'll, we'll be pretty sharp. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, it's funny this again, I warned you there would be some stupid questions going into today, uh, which if you could relive one of these moments, because it's always fascinating to hear from a player who, again, has been an <coughs> Olympic silver medalist, NCAA champion, all these different accolades, three time Kalamazoo champion and doubles only player who won three straight doubles titles in the 21st century. <laughs> Shout oh, out you to your you. Homework. Yeah, Richie. Oh, any excuse to go look through early 2000s Kalamazoo <laughs> archives? Come on. That's again, I don't have a girlfriend. I got nothing else to do today, my friend. But uh, the question I wanted to ask and not, you know, again, it, it's a little stupid, the framing. But if you could, re- you know, what means more to you? That second U.S. Open title here this year or going back and if you could rewin Newport for the first time? Because I do wonder, given the journey you have been on, how different reaching those top points have been. Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. Um, you know, to win, to defend the U S open was pretty special. So I would say if you're asking me between those two, I would say, yeah, you know, winning a slam, winning my home slam, you know, defending it was something that hadn't been done other than the woodies, um, in the open era. So, you know, it's like a lot of these things that you kind of hear about. It's just so unbelievable that, you know, I can put myself in, in some of this company, but, that being said, I, I would I would put my singles titles very high on that list because you know at the end of the day I started tennis to be to be a singles player and to be you know attempt to be a successful one and you know it's not a Grand Slam it's not a Masters but it's still a tournament on the main tour and you know I was able to win it twice and um, you know it's kind of cool that it's at the Hall of Fame and, and all that so I would say that you know my singles titles are are up there maybe just below any any Grand Slams that I would win. Plus, Rampress has to win at least one grass court <laughs> title. And like you got two of them in singles, right? So exactly. live it up to the nickname at the very least. No, that's fascinating. And part of the reason I wanted to bring that up is, you know, earlier this week, as he always does, Riley Opelka was talking about the prize money divide and making waves, talking about the role of doubles in the professional tennis ecosystem. And, you know, you've seen both sides of that equation. You've been someone who maybe had a doubles ranking early in your career that you could have taken that path, focused exclusively on doubles, but you didn't. You decided to grind it out, even if it took you a little longer to find your footing inside the top 100 of the singles rankings. I'm curious with the perspective you have now. And again, Loaded question here. I'm doing my best to be Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters here, loading you up. What do you view the role of doubles in the tennis ecosystem in 2022? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a real good question. Um, I view it as a very untapped 
uh, arena of tennis. I feel like most amateurs and recreational players and people that watch us play tennis do play doubles, especially in America. Um, I think that there's a lot to learn. And I think there's a lot of quality that comes out of the fact that we do play a shorter scoring system and we do, um, you know, we do, we don't take up that much time. You know, I think that it's very exciting. I think there's deuce points and 10 point tiebreakers and all kinds of things that make doubles incredibly exciting. So I feel like the, the, the missing link honestly is telling the stories of the guys that are playing it and, and making the players that do play it more into, you know, recognizable names that people want to go watch. Cause I don't think the issue is not doubles itself. If you put, you know, four great singles players out there, you're going to get a packed house. And so it's not doubles itself. That's the issue. It's who's playing it. And I think that's where the tour, in my opinion, sort of misses out a little bit. Um, because, uh, I feel like it's, uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's sort of a, an untapped area. Um, to answer your question, I, you know, I, I'd wish players like Riley would say things that were more, uh, conducive to inclusion of everybody because I feel like that's where we as as a group of tennis players get lost and get taken advantage of because you know tournament directors and, and business people know that we don't have each other's backs unfortunately and um, can be divided and um, that was case in point and it's uh, quite disappointing to be honest with you to, to hear a, a singles player of his platform and caliber um, make comments like that. Yeah, I, I think it was the dismissive nature that made me most frustrated as well. And again, I don't mean to be an ass and put you on the spot here and ask all these tough questions of you. But no, you're not at all. Oh, I, well, I appreciate you bringing it up. Oh, uh, thank you. I well, I appreciate you appreciating me. <laughs> Who doesn't like being appreciated? But that's why I wore the Fighting Illini shirt for you today, my friend. But you know, with that in mind, I I didn't like the tone. I do think there's a serious point to be made in that. Constantly, we're talking as tennis fans, as a broader tennis community about how best to distribute the the limited revenue we have in professional tennis. And so frequently we hear if you're outside the top 200 of the singles rankings, good luck making a, mm -hmm. a, a real living in life. And, you know, similarly, I'm sure if it's outside sometimes the top 50 of the doubles rankings, the money's not going to be extraordinary. And, you know, I think the misconception sometimes casual fans may have is that it's not football, right? We don't have the billion dollar revenue coming in from the TV deals. The pie is truly limited. And I'm curious if you think about that, because I feel like you can't do, you, you can't pay the singles, top 100 singles players better, pay the top 100 doubles players better and pay the challengers future guys better as well, right? There's just right. not enough money to do all of those things. I don't really have a question based off of that statement. I'm just curious how you view that revenue share conundrum that tennis always finds itself in. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the idea would, for me would be constant growth. I think, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm by no means, by the way, advocating that singles players or sorry, doubles players should make as much as singles players. I don't think that's the case. I, I do, however, disagree with comments that were made about us doubles guys being, you're the most overpaid athletes and whatnot. I don't think that's correct, but I think 80, 20 is a pretty flip, uh, fair split. I do have an issue, I guess with, I think challengers have been similar prize money for like 25 years or 30 years or something like that. I think that's a problem. Again, I don't have the best way to fix that. I don't know if there's a situation where, you know, tournaments can maybe be responsible for some, you know, prize money increase in some challenges. Maybe it's a regional thing. Maybe it's a seasonal thing. I, I don't really have the answer for it. I do feel like there should be some growth though. And I don't know if that's 
you know, going to come from the top down. But I, I feel like that's got to be sort of the aim is, is for there to always be some incentive to see the game going forward. And I mm-hmm. think that's, uh, yeah, I'm not the smartest guy in the room and I'm not the smartest guy to be able to do that. But I feel like that would be a, a good starting point, at least a good goal. Counterpoint, Carmel High School is as good of a public high school as I've ever seen. (laughs) So I like to think you're up there on that smart guy list here in tennis. And, you know, again, you've been a pro since May 2003, we'll say, when that NCAA tournament ended. You and Brian Wilson, the champs, and I promise we're going to get there. Relax, (laughs) listeners who are, I'm sure, eager to hear some college tennis talk. But has the conversation been the same for 20 years? Like I've only been, we've been doing this podcast now for five. And every time you bring it up, it's always the same list of things. Slams drive everything. It would really help if there's a player's union. We all have ideas, but ultimately it's really hard to find any concrete actions. Has that been the, like, I feel like those themes are recurrent and maybe even since before 2000. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know what's happened before I turned pro, but from what I can tell, it's been a a recurring theme that sort of builds the momentum, gains some leverage, and then all of a sudden something happens and it, you know, it doesn't quite follow through. And I think, you know, when you have a sport that's kind of governed by so many different, you know, um, organizations, whether it's the ITF, the ATP, the WTA, everything's sort of pulling in different directions. I think these kinds of things are going to happen. So some kind of grouping together, some kind of maybe joining forces in some way would probably help. I, I don't know, but it sure seems to me like the leagues in professional sports that are most successful are the ones that are sort of run, you know, with one main goal in mind and, and not necessarily competing against each other. You know, although I feel like maybe in some way, some some healthy competition is maybe good. I, I don't really know, but I feel like when you have all these things trying to kind of butt heads. I feel like that's where you get some conflict and, and some issues. And like you said, the, the recurring themes of all the things you listed. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it would help if the central theme shared across all these events, the through line was growing the game. And with that in mind, I want to talk about some things you have done to grow the game. One of the biggest being we had challenger tennis in Indianapolis this year. Yeah. Obviously people in Indianapolis, the tennis community knows it was once home to a really fun ATP event that Jimmy Arias tells me prior to the start of that event, all the players in the main draw got to go scrimmage with the Indiana Pacers. And I'm just saying, if you wow. want to do that for the challenger, I will happily cover it for you, my friend. So just <laughs> you're going um, to be involved. Yeah, if need be, I, I can throw the ball up for the toss. I'll, I'll call a travel call here and there. You should see my dad do a double dribble in the mirror when he goes back to his ref roots. We've got the crew for you, my friend. But what did it mean to you to be a part in bringing high level tennis back to Indianapolis this year? Uh, it was it was so cool. Um, I was a ball boy for the RCA championships in 1997. I want to say I ball boyed for Andre Agassi, Alex Karecha, Jonas Bjorkman, Carlos Mafia. You know all these guys that a few of them I ended up playing, which was which was really cool. But anyway, that's the different story. But you know, just so amazing to go, you know, to see professional tennis like literally in front of my face. You know, and as a I think I was 13 at the time, as a 13 or 12 year old, like what more could you ask for, for inspiration, you know? And then, you know, I played, you know, that tournament five times before it, it, you know, unfortunately left Indianapolis. And so it was a goal of our foundation for a long time to have professional tennis in the city of some kind. We had some exhibitions, although that wasn't, you know, anywhere near as real as, as this. And and then now to have all these guys come through town who I, I know I'm colleagues with, I've played against probably, I've, you know, practiced with whatever, to see them, you know, playing a tournament that that we're putting on. I mean, I was just, I was 
thinking it was like the coolest thing ever to see that happen. And then, you know, to see some of the people come by and just appreciate how good all these guys are, you know, I mean, they're not, you know, no one came to play the challenger that was going to go win the U S open necessarily, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the, you know, the level of professional tennis is, is so high and it's so deep and it's just, uh, it was so, it was really fun to see that. Um, yeah, you know, in a place that I practice all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would like to just point out that I think E Bing Wu and Ben Shelton could have won the U.S. Open if things broke right for them. So that would yeah. be my yeah, that would be. <laughs> I'm telling you what, yeah. I was gonna say that was the other thing that was so cool to hear was like later on people are like, oh my gosh, did you watch you know Ben Shelton or did you watch so and so play at you know Atlanta or in uh, Cincy or U.S. Open all the places that Ben Shelton happened to do well this summer, which was a lot. Um, you know, like people got behind a guy and got behind some players that they got to see up close. Like that is really cool that, you know, they, you know, some of these guys got some, some extra fans because, uh, you know, people got to see him play up close here in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. No, it was awesome. I heard a rumor that we almost had a, you and Nishesh Basavaretti doubles pairing in the main draw. Is that true? Were these rumors oh, yeah. possible? No, there was, we, we had talked about it, but at the end of the day, I, I figured like, I probably shouldn't give myself a wild card in my own tournament <laughs> firstly. And secondly, like I actually wanted to try and be on the the other side of it, like help, you know, help out if the guys needed something and then do my best to, you know, I wasn't there for very long. I, honestly, like my, the, the rest of the team did all the legwork, but if I could do anything in those few days that I was able to be here, I didn't want to get, you know, have a tennis match get in the way of that. So I, I thought it was uh, the right thing. And I'm very, very happy that I chose to do that. Yeah, I would. I- I was ready for the you and Nishesh pairing. And <laughs> there may be a podcast conversation from back in July where we say, yeah, I think that team's going to win because Rajiv with Nishesh's backhand, like, I like it. I like it a lot. It's, I like it too. And yeah. you never know. Maybe we might make it happen at some point down the road. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, you could. Uh, what's it called when they put their assets in a blind trust? You could put tournament directorship in a blind trust and then go play your couple matches. And then, you know, we get the get the resources out of the trust. That's but. Right. You know, obviously for you, I, I know that was a big thing for you to be able to have pro tennis here in your home community. Obviously, every year you do your entourage for kids as well, which is a really fun event, a really fun charity that obviously is trying to promote getting younger players, people who may not have access to the court on court and exposed to tennis. Just, a, I suppose, not even a tangent, but I know our listeners are curious, what can they do to support your foundation? Because obviously we talk about growing the game. This is how it gets grown. Yeah, sure. If, if anyone is interested, it's the it's actually we changed names now. It's called the Rajiv Ram Foundation. So okay. you can go to our website. There's a donate button. It's It's very simple. If anyone would be interested in making a donation, we also are you know, we will be posting about different events that we might have. We're always looking for volunteers for anything that we do. We actually had an unbelievable group of volunteers for this challenger, both from the the district CITA, the, the Midwest section, um, you know, HCCTA had a few people out there. We had just so many people that wanted to help. And that, and that is honestly sometimes more valuable than money. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways um, that you could, you could help. Um, we are a very small group. We just try to promote the game, as you said, in our, in our community and, and hope we can, you know, introduce it to some, some kids that may not have that opportunity. So it's not like, um, you know, we're, we're national or global or anything, but we do, um, are, are proud of the stuff that we do in our, in our local community for sure. I have to follow up who cajoled you into dropping entourage for kids because exceptional, exceptional branding. Yeah, I know. Right. I thought so too. We had a, we had a, we had a, just a, a meeting about it and just thought perhaps 
this would, you know, gain a little bit more recognition as to kind of the, the group behind it and the fact that it was a tennis thing. But I agree. I got a soft spot for Entourage for sure, because that started way back when I was yeah. playing the indie tournament. And, you know, yeah, that, that that name will still stick around. It's just unfortunately not the name of our foundation. Anymore. Yeah, people, <laughs> people say Chris Martin was the Vinny Chase of the 03 Illini team. So, you know, <laughs> it was an allusion to all of those things. No, I mean, again, I, it's like they dropped the the in the Facebook, the Rajiv Ram Foundation, probably just a little cleaner uh, yeah, that way, maybe. certainly. So I guess we can understand that. But again, for people who want to check it out, RajivRamFoundation.org, you can learn about all the things uh, the foundation does to get just again, even if it's just a local community, get people involved with the sport. With that said, you've been involved with the sport now 20 plus years. I want to dive into that history again. I started out with the 03 NCAA title run. You may have had this conversation back in the day. Now, you may not have had it in 15 years, but I got to ask 98 Stanford versus 03 Illini. Who's taking the title? Oh, look, um, we have had that conversation. And unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know if it's much of a conversation because those, those boys from Stanford all went on to be pretty great players. They got a couple <laughs> a couple of Hall of Famers. A couple, I think their sixth guy got to 100 in the world, which unfortunately our sixth guy or our five or four guy probably didn't either. But you know what? I think the fact is, is that, you know, both teams were, were pretty special, um, you know, but but those guys were were top notch in what they achieved afterwards and and the season that they had they they were i mean we were dominant they were even more dominant so yeah in fairness though you guys had the condor right mike (laughs) no no he's he was gone by then already so we didn't even have the condor on our team unfortunately he was a he was a legend already by that point (laughs) okay that that checks out then that explains why they might have the spot over you guys but you know i went back I did my research. I looked at the 03 Illini and for our listeners who maybe are a little bit less familiar with that team or, you know, don't know what you guys were able to accomplish. 32 and 0, obviously national champions as well. You know, the only match you guys got pushed to 4-3 throughout the duration of the season was that NCAA final. And I'm curious for you, straight set winner in singles, won the doubles flight as well. Shout out to you. They call him Captain Clutch, Rajiv Ram over here on the other side. But I mean, Two things, I guess, head because who played one and two? It was Delic and uh, who Brian played Wilson. and Brian Wilson, who yeah. both lost their matches against Vanderbilt. That yeah. had to be the first time that happened all year, right? Um, oh, I mean, we were down three one because we lost the doubles point as well, and those two were the first. I think I I might have won first, but then those are the uh, the, the next two singles matches that that finished. And I said we we didn't have that was our only four three all match. So yeah, I mean. From going, you know, for the first 31 matches to have not lost three points, all of a sudden losing three out of the first four was a bit, yeah, uh, you know, it shakes you a bit. But uh, and then the other, the all the other matches were, if I'm not mistaken, all three sets. I know four and six were. I can't. I think five was as well. So, yeah, I mean, we were down to the very nitty gritty of it. And I think, you know, obviously, yeah, it's not that dominating fashion. But what a way to what a way to win that title for us. I think, you know, I mean, like to to go through and the to dominate the whole season and it come down to you know, such tight, tense moments at the end of it. Um, it was crazy. Yeah, I, mean, I remember I remember watching the last game on six like it was yesterday. Yeah, so that leads me to my follow-up. A, was the ball in that Chris Martin hit <laughs> on the overrule? If you ask me, I'm going to say yes. If you ask Bobby Reynolds, he's going to say absolutely not. But, hey, 
it's not either of our calls at that point. So if whatever the umpire said, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. When you go to Australia and you see Craig Tiley, who, of course, is now the big wig at Tennis Australia, runs the Australian Open. Do you still call him coach? Like, how does that relationship work now? You know, it's funny. Craig had this thing when you ask anyone on that played for anyone. Uh, sorry, played for him at any point. If he call, if you called him coach, he would call you player. <laughs> so he, he, he actually wanted you as his player to refer to him by his name. So I never, along with anyone else that played for him, called him coach. He was always Craig. So that really didn't change at all. What I find funny sometimes is like, you know, when people are like, oh, Mr. Tiley, and they're all you know, so, super respectful because, like you said, he's a big wig. And, you know, a bunch of the people that have been there and played for him or were around Illinois tennis in some way or you know, have a little bit of a more informal relationship, let's say, you know, it, it, that's, that's funny to me. You don't have to answer this question, but true or false, he gives you court assignment beneficial treatment because, you know, you're his guy. I'm going to say false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK. I'm gonna, You know, that checks out. Um, I'm also curious because I've gotten to know him very well. What's 2003 Bruce Burke like? Because like young Bruce, I can only imagine him out on the court. I mean, you know what Bruce was? He was the perfect compliment to Craig. And I think that was one of the things that made our team uh you know flow so well it was you know craig was probably a little more lively and a little bit more you know he was the guy out front but bruce you know handled a lot of the stuff behind the scenes he was super organized and, and he was just they were just such a good fit for each other i think and sort of played off of each other in a way so um yeah i mean he was he, he probably didn't get as much of the limelight or as much of the credit as, as craig did for sure and i'm you know i feel like that was you know, he was okay with that. And his, his role was so important and valuable in kind of keeping the team together and keeping us you know, focused on the right goal and, and, and saying all the right things and all that. And I think, um, you know, I think Craig would probably say this himself that, you know, he, he, he was very lucky to have Bruce as his assistant for sure. If you tell Bruce, Hey, this is what I want to accomplish. He'll be like, okay, here's step one, two, three, four, five, six. And then if you here's six B in case you yeah. don't like six. So we'll try that instead. I, I completely yeah. agree with you. Yeah, Just, that was like, him for sure. Yeah, the man who can get things done again, as you can tell, I like to do my research before these podcasts. I heard Ryler DeHart was undefeated against you in practice during the 2003 season that he should have been at the number three spot. What says Rajiv? He, he probably should have. Um, and he beat me. He beat me in the he was undefeated against everybody. As far as I remember, he was amazing in practice. And I mean, he was pretty darn good in the match. I think he got to number one in the country a yeah. year or two later. So it wasn't like he was struggling when it came to competition either. I mean, you know, we, we had about nine guys that could have interchanged. I think we just happened to have those six playing, you know, in that last match. But we, we you know, we, we, we uh, changed around our lineup all the time, the whole season. And, you know, I think that was one of the, th the things that Craig did great is he gave everybody a chance, most everyone a chance to play, you know, really high, really low, kind of all over the place. And you dealt with different pressures because of it. And, you know, we were so lucky because we had such a deep squad. But, you know, yeah, definitely not the six guys out there were the only six guys that could have done it. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it's not every team has their number six singles player, also the lead singer for Coldplay, right? So yeah, that's a, also that. so, yeah, so it's a pretty, uh, pretty solid squad you guys had down there. But I had a theory I have posed to people like Stevie and Somdev and all the big wigs. I guess I haven't talked to Isner yet. Should he want to come on the show? This would be a question for him. 
it's a theory I have, and I want uh, again tell me if I'm right or wrong. But part of the benefits, in my opinion, of college tennis—not just the free matches, the free training, all of the obvious low-hanging fruit—but the confidence you get from that. I just think being the best in the world at something, you can't fake that. And for the 2003 season, you, Brian Wilson, ultimately the best doubles team in the country by the end of it. You win that NCAA doubles title. Does that confidence translate into your first few years on the pro? What is it like making that transition from being the guy to, you know, trying to break through in pro tennis? Um, I think it's different for everyone. I think that the the value in college tennis is just the amount of competition you get. I mean, you know, and the, the, the guys you talked about were not only great players in college tennis, but they were on great teams too, right? Mm-hmm. And and I had the luxury of being that as well. So not only were the matches competition, but every day was competition. When you went out and played, like you mentioned, you know, I would lose to Ryler all the time or or whether it was Amir or Brian or whoever I'm playing, playing in practice. I mean, it was really tough, you know, and then not to mention, you know, then you go out and you play the, the matches and that's competition because you have your team and you want to win and obviously all that kind of stuff. So I think that's... Um, the, the huge benefit from college tennis is just it's constantly competitive and you got to prove yourself every day. I think the the challenge for a lot of the guys and myself included is that you are kind of at the top of that list, if you will, especially if you're on a, a good team and all that, that when you go out on the tour, you're playing in much, you know, less nice areas and places in these futures and against much better players all of a sudden. So it's like double whammy, you know, and you got to figure out, to sort of find your place and, you know, take a lot of positives from losses. And even if you are not winning, you know, you can, you know, you got to trust in the fact that you are improving and getting better and progressing and all that stuff. And, you know, you're used to winning all the time and losing, you know, a handful of matches a year. And all of a sudden you're losing three, four, five weeks in a row, but still, you still got to kind of take some, some positives out of that. That That's the toughest part, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and something I definitely struggled with. Mm-hmm. I feel like Edwardsville, Decatur, it's a rite of passage. Like you got to yeah. go through those cities to eventually get to the Wimbledons and the yeah. U.S. Opens. With that in mind, when did you feel comfortable as a pro? When did you feel like, you know, did it take a couple of years, a couple of months, whatever it was? Maybe it's not even today. You're still looking for that comfort zone of just being like, OK, I get how to do this now. Yeah, no, it took me, I would say the better part of five, six years to, to feel comfortable. Um, you know, it, it, I won my first, I won my singles title in 2009. I turned pro in 2004. So, I mean, yeah, right, right about then where I kind of just felt like, you know, I play a certain way. It's not like everybody else and that's okay. This is what I do. This is how I play. And, you know, it helped to have the right people around me to sort of, you know, feel like I belonged somewhere. Cause I always didn't, I didn't always feel like I belonged on the tennis tour, you know, not only just kind of the way that I was, but also the way that I played a lot of things. And I think that's the biggest thing in, in my singles career. So it was, you know, it was quite a while, you know, after I turned pro to really feel that. And I think that's one of the things I'll say that has helped me do pretty well in doubles is we've kind of formed a team around us, you know, Joe and I both, but then also everyone else that's around us. That's sort of like, you know, our group. And, um, you know, we, yeah, we, we kind of let it all out there in our group and we were pretty honest with each other. And, and I think that, it's a place where we all feel like we belong. And I think that really helps me, um, you know, play my best tennis and, and compete my best and, and all that, all the things that I need to do to be, you know, to try and be as successful as I can. I once asked this to Stevie about his backhand and his, I always say, you know, if we identify it, I'm sure, you know, people are going to be targeting it, you know, 20 years later, 
do you feel like, again, does it bring you joy when people think they can attack the forehand or they see the one handed backhand and they're like, that's where I'm going to catch him. And then you just the little sneaker down the line and you're like, no, you're not my friend. You know, all these years later, does this, I, it must still bring you joy. Right. How could it not? I mean, sometimes it brings me shock when that backhand <laughs> goes down the line for a winner. So that's usually my first my first emotion is, wow, that's pretty good. I didn't know I could do that. But uh yeah, no, look, I mean, you know, when you see the, the biggest, one of the biggest joys for me in tennis is probably the biggest is, is the feeling of improving. So I was like, yeah, you know, if, if a shot really sucked as my backhand has for some time, then you, you get better at it. You get better at it. It's never going to be a great shot, but you know, you do feel that, you know, incremental improvement. I think that's a lot of fun for me. You know, like it's like hard work is actually paying off in some way, especially if you happen to catch one in a big moment, it's, it, it, you know, it's, you, you know, that it's not maybe all luck because you did work at it and you did try and adjust some things and change some things. And you did put that, you know, at the time in. So I think, you know, that's something that's more, you know, satisfying, I guess, for me, you know, personally than, than most things in tennis. Mm-hmm. You talk about satisfying. And again, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So last few questions here. Um, I, whenever I, I was once talking with Stevie and he was like, you're not going to ask me about the Olympics, like to be an Olympian. Trust me, it's the coolest thing you get to do. Yeah. You are not just an Olympian. You are an Olympic silver medalist who got to play with Venus freaking Williams at that event. And I won't lie. I see on social media, people still go after you being like, how did Venus not get the gold? It's Rajiv's fault, which is just ludicrous all these years later. But what is that experience like being an Olympian, being in the village, winning that medal? It's got to be awesome. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's, you know, Olympics is something that's bigger than tennis. I mean, if you would have asked me what match, you know, what thing I'm possibly most proud of, it's having an Olympic medal and what match I could have back if I could reverse the result is if I could make that silver or gold, I think that would be my answer. Um, you know, you, you see tennis as this small, small piece of this huge, you know, world sporting, you know, platform where you see the best of the best and what they do. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I've ever experienced or will experience anything like it to, to play in two. And hopefully if, if it goes well, I, I get to play my third one, um, in Paris, but like the first, the, the two that I've gotten to play have just been, incredible experiences and, and winning a medal is like icing on the cake you know it's mm-hmm. like just the whole experience and stevie would would be the same way with his bronze medal i mean it's just you know everything that you get to do that goes around with it the opening ceremonies and like you said the village and hanging out and watching other sports and seeing your country win medals in other sports like there's nothing like it i'm um I, I never thought about it as a kid you know i want to go to the olympics but it's probably the coolest one of the coolest things i've done in tennis for sure do you try to sneak onto the usa basketball cruise ship <laughs> not the cruise ship, but I watched the game if that counts. <laughs> no, it counts. I also think it's fascinating. You watch like the body language of the bronze medalist who end on a win versus yeah. like the silver medalist to obviously a tough final. And it's just like they got to figure out a way to make that smoother because it gets a, it's a little tricky, right? It's really tricky. I I didn't at the time. I didn't want to be there at all. Like it's <laughs> unbelievable. You just won an Olympic medal. and I would have rather have been anywhere else because I thought we had a decent chance to win the gold, but yeah, you're right. It's a little bit of a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. We'll figure that one out for you. Uh, obviously all of this was a setup and I'm sure you could see it coming that opportunity to represent your country. Unfortunately, you weren't able to do that for Davis cup this season. Is Davis cup something you are obviously still open to? Is that something, you know, again, to not be chosen, what goes through your head in that moment and what is your reaction to everything that happened? Um, your first question, am I still open to playing Davis Cup? Yes, Davis Cup's been a dream of mine to play and to win since I can remember. I sort of unlike the Olympics. The Olympics, you don't really think about as a tennis player maybe all the time. But 
at least not I at least I didn't, but Davis Cup's something I remember watching from when I was a kid and wanting to represent, you know, the US, you know, yeah, forever. Um what was my reaction to it? Why well, I, I was I was it was after the US Open, right before I went to Europe. So I just won the US Open, just clinched a, a, a tire, helped clinch a tire against, against Great Britain and just became number one in the world when I was told I wasn't going to get selected. So I was shocked and, and disappointed and yeah, didn't didn't really understand why and didn't agree with it. But at that moment, I, I told the captain that you know it was his decision and, and that's what he was going to go with. He was going to go with the fact that he was going to play with singles players. And then to be very honest, the, the bigger shock came is when I realized that we were only taking four players and not even filling the fifth seat. And to me, that was really poor. Um, I felt like um, we had a great opportunity to win that thing this year, and we just didn't give our best effort. And that's to me, that's unexcusable. It's like, you know, taking a football team without without you know a couple of quarterbacks or something. Like, I don't know why you would do that, but I, I still don't have a great answer for that. But that was really difficult to to swallow. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can only imagine. So again, to your, it, it sounds like you've alluded to this, but Davis Cup still matters, right? To, I know yeah. it may not get, it, they've changed the format, but it still very much matters to you and to players. Yeah, to me it does. I mean, I don't know about anyone else and I, I can't speak for anyone else. And I think there's some sure. things that were better in the old format, but it's still, for me, the biggest team competition that we have in the sport, um, you know, in terms of, you know, national representation. So yeah, it still matters. Mm-hmm. No, hopefully. I mean, again, national, uh, national champion in college, obviously an Olympic medalist as well. I think I speak for a lot of American tennis fans. Rajiv Ram should have been on that roster. And obviously we hope to see you competing for the U S and Davis cup in the future. All right. Last two questions for you. I want to have some fun, obviously, before I let yeah. you go. Um, you know, they say in doubles, middle solves the riddle. They're also saying the serve and volley is dead. I ask you, Rajiv Ram, who's never met a second serve, he can't serve and volley behind. <laughs> is the serve and volley dead? In doubles, no. I think I actually think this is one of the reasons doubles is so fun to watch is you have players that can play all kinds of different styles and be successful. You have guys that serve and stay back. You have guys like Joe and I that come in on every serve we hit. Uh, you have players that, you know, poach and mix it up and, you know, who knows? Maybe you're going to start seeing two back on the serve pretty soon. I don't know. But, you know, you're seeing players play from all different, you know, areas of the court in all different styles. Some players play soft, some players play big, lots of lobs, angles, and different strategies. I, I think, you know, the, the, the way the doubles is played is so, you know, it's so varied that it, it makes for such a, such a fun, you know, uh, you know, yeah, fun spectacle, I guess. No, absolutely. I also think we should start calling you your team Rampers in the Steak. Obviously, Steak being Salisbury <laughs> Steak. So it's just like the low hanging fruit. Uh, Maybe right you there. could get that. Maybe you could get that going. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, again, it, it makes sense. Or the boys in blue, Fighting Illini, Memphis Tigers. We'll figure yeah. it out. I'll, I'll figure out a way to get it going. But one thing when I watch you play, and I had the pleasure of watching a lot of hours of Rajiv Ram in the build up to this podcast, your ability to spike a backhand, like a, a high backhand volley, which in my you opinion like is it's the single hardest thing to do in tennis. And they talk about dad strength and old man strength and all these different things. Is it that you got married in 2017 and now you have the strength to just do that fluidly? I feel like that is the toughest shot. I don't really know. It's, it's a, it's a weird one, but like that, I, I honestly don't understand how people hit it the other way. Like I, that's the most natural shot for me to hit is to hit it off the way that I do on that deuce court. And I, I get, yeah, people, especially my own teammate talks to me about it all the time, but like, it seems to be the, the easiest way to finish the point. And if I tried to hit the other way, I'd probably get hit in the face with the ball. I don't know, but like, yeah, I just, 
it just seems like the most logical thing to do. So I've just stuck with it. <laughs> no, I've I've done some physics in my day. And again, we need some a new theorem, the the Rom backhand theorem of defying because again, the spiking is exceptional and uh for whatever it's worth, it seems to be working between you and Joe. <laughs> so obviously don't slow it down. I lied. I got one more bonus question. Yeah. Thirty eight years old, what's the off season look like for you? Uh, a lot different than it looked a few years ago, that's for sure. Um, a lot less tennis, a lot more just, you know, taking care of any little injuries and niggles that might be there, trying to just prepare my body for another season, another year. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot less on the court, a lot more in the gym and also just kind of like resting and chilling out because the, the travel is not easy. It, it takes me a while to, you know, get adjusted to time zones and this and that. So enjoying times to not be on a plane also. Yeah, I like it. Last, there is the true final question. Uh, you have, you have options here. Joe okay. Salisbury, Barbara Krachikova, Brian Wilson or Jonathan Stokey. You're going ride or die with one of them. Who you picking got- as your doubles partner? <laughs> I got to go with with the OG. I got to go with my boy Jonathan Stokey. Um, <laughs> he said three three Kalamazoo's. We actually never even lost there. The one time we didn't win it, he had to pull out because he hurt his back. I think yeah. if I remember correctly. So. Yeah, unless Joe and I win a third U.S. Open, that's the uh, that's the one I'm going to go with. <laughs> yeah, I figured it would be between him and Barbara. Like, honest to God, <laughs> no disrespect to Joe, but like thinking in my head, I'd be like, well, comparatively, when you have Krachikova on your side, you're just going to win the mixed matches. And right. so, like, yeah, I figured that would be close. But yeah, three Kalamazoo titles. It, like, by the third one, you probably like, you know, because I think you lost to Isner in the O2 singles at Kalamazoo. I and did. you're honestly probably yeah. like, I don't care about that. I'm here to win the doubles title. Title. Yeah, that was like one of my worst losses in junior tennis was losing to Isner. <laughs> that worked out. No. Yeah, no, but it was amazing. I mean, we we did great there and we had a lot of fun playing and we, you know, we won a couple other tournaments along the way and it was just a blast. I mean, he's such a good, such a good dude. And uh, yeah, just uh, had a blast playing junior doubles with John. So now some scholars have argued six foot seven serve into a one handed backhand has never been a beneficial matchup. And so, yeah, we'll write that one off in 02 based on that yeah. fact. But uh, obviously, Rajiv, uh, immensely grateful you took the time to speak with us. And seriously, congratulations. World number one, another Grand Slam title. Could have mentioned you won the World Tour finals as well. Not the worst year, uh, my friend, for a man. <laughs> who expected to be retired at this point. So congratulations to you. Be safe, be healthy. Happy New Year to you and your family. And Noah's spot is always open for you here on this show. Thanks for having me. It was great. I appreciate it. Take care, my friend. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with five-time Grand Slam champion and current ATP number three in the doubles rankings, Rajiv Ram. A massive thank you to Rajiv for his candidness in answering all of our questions. Sincerely hope we're able to have him on the podcast again in the future. And remember to learn more about how you can support his charity. Go check out the Rajiv Ram Foundation. It's RajivRamFoundation.org. Of course, you can type that into the Google machine as well. It will point you in the right direction. Of course, this podcast, one of many extraordinary podcasts we've got for you right now at Crack Rackets. We're previewing all things 2023 college tennis over on the GSP, all things 2023 ATP WTA tennis over on our mini break podcast feed. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff for the editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. And massive thank you to our friends at Swing Vision as well. Remember to learn more about how you can get access to the best artificial intelligence technology in the game of tennis. Check out that Swing Vision app today. Use our promo code CRACK20 to let them know that we sent you there. But 
with all that in mind, for the fantastic Rajiv Ram, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Swing Vision, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.